You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit GoCentralChurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I encourage you to open to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. And while you are turning there, if I had not had a chance to meet you, my name is Mike. I am, uh, clearly I am not Pastor Ethan, uh, but I am Mike. I'm the student and young professionals pastor here at Central. Uh, yeah, woo! Um, I, I, pre- I appreciate that. Uh, I'll let them know you send your regards. Uh, but uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be able to bring the word with you this morning. So Vince Lombardi, some of you may know that name. Vince Lombardi is widely regarded as one of, if not the greatest NFL head coaches of all time. He is the, the, the Super Bowl trophy, the Lombardi trophy, is named after Vince Lombardi. And he was the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. All right, woo, I didn't know there were so many Packers fans in here, right? But in July of 1961, Vince Lombardi gathers his team, and he's, getting, and he's preparing for day one of training camp, getting ready for day one of spring training, getting ready for that next, that 1961 season. And just a few months prior to this day, just a few months prior to this, the, uh, the Green Bay Packers actually lost in the NFL championship game to the Philadelphia Eagles. Pastor Josh, that is the only reference that is positive I'll give to the Eagles, right? Especially today. But they lost to the Philadelphia Eagles in heartbreaking fashion. They had the lead late in the game. They gave it up late in the fourth quarter, and they ultimately would lose. And he gathers 38 of his players on day one of training camp. And he does something that has now really gone down in history that was one of the greatest speeches given to a football team. And it's rather simple. He holds up a football. Some of you may have heard this story. He holds up a football to his team. And he says, gentlemen, this is a football. And he goes on. He has them open their, book, their playbooks to page one. And he explains to them the fundamentals of the game of football. And here is what he is quoted as saying. He says, football is two things. It's blocking and tackling. I don't care about formations or new offenses or tricks on defense. You block and tackle better than the team you're playing, and you will win. And this is a room of professional football players. This is not, you know, your little league team. This is not a group of eight to ten year olds playing flag football. These are professional football players, not only professional football players, championship level football players. And he's telling them the fundamentals of football. Why would he do this? Because Vince Lombardi understood something that oftentimes we need to be reminded of, and it is this, that we are really good at overcomplicating the not so complicated. We are really good at overcomplicating the not so complicated. And when we lose sight of the fundamentals, we lose sight of that which matters the most. In my short 29 years of life, I have learned that we as Christians are really, really good at things that oftentimes just really don't matter. We have gotten really good at things that in the grand scheme of life, the grand scheme of eternity, really just don't 
matter. And I think the reason is not because we're maliciously disobedient. I think the, what we find is oftentimes that we have lost sight of the fundamentals. We have lost sight of the basics. We have lost sight of the essence of our faith. And I'm going to be totally transparent with you. I greatly struggled putting this message together this week. I struggled. And here's the thing. It's not because the passage is complicated. It's actually because it's actually quite simple. The passage is simple. See, this fall, I will have been serving here at Central Church for 10 years. Yay. Granted, many of those years were folding bulletins and making runs to the post office, but nonetheless. And over those 10 years, God has surrounded me with some people that, some men and women that have forgotten more than I will ever know. He has surrounded me with people who have taught me so much, and God has taught me so much over these past 10 years. But one thing is probably the most profound thing that God has taught me is this, is that the job of a pastor sometimes is to teach people what they do not know. But most of the time, it is to remind them of what they have already heard. And this morning, for some of you, this will be a reminder of what you have already heard. For others, it is very possible that what we're going to talk about this morning is something that you have never heard before. But regardless of what camp you fall into, we need to never grow past the basics and the fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian. Because when we do that, we become really good at things that don't matter, and we have no impact on eternity. Here in Luke 15, we are reminded of the basics. Here in Luke 15, Jesus just like Vince Lombardi held up the football, Jesus holds up the parable of the lost sheep and says, church, this is redemption. This is the gospel. I don't know what you have heard that it is. And if you're in this room, maybe you have heard a lot about what the gospel is, what redemption is. But this morning, we're going to see Jesus hold up this parable and say, this is what it's about. This is what it's about. And we can be really good at a lot of things. But if we miss this, then none of it matters. Amen. If we miss this, then none of it matters. We're in a series called Who's Your Neighbor? Right, we're talking about, man, how do we take the great commission that God has given us, right? To go into all the world, and, and baptizing and making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. To take this commission, take this mission that God has given us, and how do we put feet to it? That sometimes we're so focused on changing the world that we forget that God has also called us to change the world of one person. And here's the thing. If we're not careful, we, be, we can become really good at inviting people to church. But if that's where it ends, then what good is it? We've talked about this several times over the past few months that we are a church that exists to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches for our neighbors and the nations. We are not called to multiply church attenders. We are called to multiply disciples. And if all our disciple-making is is inviting people to church, that is a great start. But it cannot stop there. And oftentimes it stops there because we lose sight of the fundamentals. If we're going to be faithful in making, of taking the gospel to those who need it, if we're going to multiply disciples for our neighbors and the nations, then we must continually be reminded of the truths that Jesus gives us here in the parable of the lost sheep. 
So with that being said, I encourage you, if you would, please stand with me as we read from the Word of God in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You would pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word that is living and active. Father, as we approach this text this morning, Father, we know that your word says that it will accomplish that which you have set for it to do. So we ask, Father, that your word will accomplish your will and in the hearts and the lives of people this morning. God, we thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can grab a seat. So here in Luke 15, maybe uh, as you kind of like, you know, maybe if you're like me, you open the passage and you're kind of like, all right, what's this guy going to talk about today? You know, and you're looking at it. And, you know, Luke 15 is home to three of probably some of the most memorable parables in all of the Gospels. You have the parable of the lost sheep, which we just read. You have the parable of the lost coin. A woman has 10 coins. She loses one of them. She lights a lamp, searches the house to find this one coin. And when she does find it, she gathers her friends and family and rejoices. And probably the most memorable is the parable of the prodigal son. There's a son who asks for his inheritance early from his father. He goes off and he, and he blows it in, in debauchery and sin and he finds himself totally broken, totally in shambles and all he can do is to run back to his father in shame but the father, while he's still far away, runs to him, right? You remember, he runs to him, greets him, puts a ring on his finger, kills the, the fattened calf and says, man, we're gonna party because my son who was lost has now been found. These are wonderful parables. All of them stand the test of time. All of them stand on their own. But I think what is even more, what's even more impactful than this necessarily these parables on their own is the context in which these parables are given. Because what you'll find is that is the context that is the reason Jesus gives the parables. And if we miss the reason for the parables, then we miss the whole point, Right? Here in verse 1, we find Jesus in a very familiar position. Verse 1 tells us that sinners and tax collectors have been drawing near to Jesus. Now, this is a term that we see a lot in the Gospels, sinners and tax collectors. One thing we need to know is this is not sinners in a general sense, right? Because if that's the case, all of us are sinners. I am a sinner. This is something that that the Bible makes very, very clear. So what exactly, who are these specific sinners? Well, these are people who are known for their sinfulness. These are adulterers, prostitutes, thieves, liars, tax collectors, the outcasts of society, the unworthy, the unrighteous, and the undeserving. And they are coming to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He receives them. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't tell them, get it together, and then you can come. He receives them. 
Now the Pharisees see this and they do not like it. And part of this goes back to who the Pharisees are at their core. Literally, the term Pharisee means set apart ones, set up ones that are set apart, separated ones. And the reason is because they understood or they believed that their standing before God was determined on their righteousness, on their cleanliness. So what they would do is they would stay away from anyone and anything that would make them unclean in the eyes of God. Literally, rabbis in this day, if you were to read old rabbinical writings, taught that you should never associate with a wicked person, even to bring them the law. At the core of a Pharisee is this idea of being set apart from that which is unclean. And here they see Jesus, this man who claims at the very least to be sent from God. And he is not only with sinners, but he is welcoming them and receiving them. And they see this and they say, how can this man who claims to be righteous simultaneously welcome the unrighteous? How does that work? So what do they do? They complain and they criticize. As a side note, it's interesting that it's rarely the people that you want to follow in their footsteps that you find in the Bible that complain and criticize. It is here, when Jesus hearing their criticisms, it is in response to their criticisms that Jesus gives these three parables. So these three parables are meant to be understood within the context that Jesus is addressing the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus looks at them and says, clearly, you just don't get it. I did not come for what you think I came for. I came to seek and save the lost. What we're going to see this morning is that the motivation to seek the lost comes from a proper understanding of the basics. So, what are the basics? We see them in this passage. First thing we see is the lostness of the sheep. Sorry. The lostness of the sheep. Let's, let's read this. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Man, that phrase, until he finds it, is so strong. Now, on the surface, this seems absolutely crazy, doesn't it? Seems absolutely ridiculous. Why would you leave 99 perfectly good sheep in, in danger and, and suspect to the wilderness so that you could go after and get one? Now, I'm not a math genius, but that doesn't necessarily add up. That's not a good investment. Why would you do this, Jesus? In fact, if you think about it, these 99 sheep have done nothing wrong. Why would you risk 99 sheep who've done nothing wrong to rescue one that, if we're honest, it's his fault anyway? Right? Like, I don't feel bad for that sheep. All he's got to do is just stick to the shepherd. It's not that hard. This is kind of like this. So for me, one of my guilty pleasures is I love to watch, like, fail videos. I don't know if anybody can relate to this. And maybe it's the sinful part of me, I don't know, that just like watching people just try things. In particular, try things that we all know are dangerous, and then somehow they get hurt, right? And I think the people that most, like, that I see a lot is these people who place their hands in alligators' mouths. Now, if you're in the room and you do that for a living, God bless you. This is not a personal attack on you. This is just me, right? But whenever I'm watching a series of fail videos and I see an alligator, I know only one thing is about to happen, right? They're holding this alligator, this, this, their hand in the alligator's mouth, woo-hoo-hoo, and what happens? Boom. And then they're surprised when an alligator 
bites them. And I look at that and I say, I don't feel bad for you. I'm sorry. I hope you get better, but I don't feel bad for you. And here's the thing. A lot of us, that's how we view lost sheep. That's how a lot of us view people who are lost and broken in this world. As we look at them, we say, look, I get it. I'm sorry. I hope you feel better, but I really don't feel bad for you. We have no compassion. But here's something we need to understand. So I want to say, why would we risk, why would we risk the safety of 99 for the sake of one? Well, that's a faulty understanding of this passage. First thing to understand is that in a village setting, which is what Jesus is speaking into here, when they would have their sheep, they would get they would shepherd their flocks in a communal setting, which means that ultimately that let's say I have 20 sheep, you have 15 sheep, someone else has 30 sheep, someone who just has it like that, they got 50 sheep, right? And we would, get, we would shepherd our sheep together during the day, and then at night, we would go to our separate pens. So for the shepherd to leave his sheep to go seek after the one is actually not abandoning the 99 sheep. That The safety of the 99 sheep is assumed in the telling of this story. So let's not make the passage about something it's not. The 99 are never in danger here. The only sheep that is in danger is the one that is lost. Now, it was not uncommon for a sheep to wander off from a flock. This happens all the time, and this is why Jesus uses this illustration and why it works so well. People know this. They say, which one of you, if you have a sheep, if you have 100 sheep and one goes off, you'll go get it. And everyone's like, yeah, of course. Of course we would. Here's the thing. Sheep are totally helpless on their own. One commentator put it this way. He says, no creature strays more easily than a sheep. None is more heedless. None is so incapable of finding its way back to the flock. When once gone astray, it will bleat for the flock and still run in an opposite direction from where the flock is. See, when a sheep is isolated from the flock and isolated from the shepherd, that sheep is incapable of finding its way back. That sheep is doomed. Sheep is doomed. The sheep, fun fact for the day, Sheep is one of the few animals in the world that has no natural self-defense. Danger comes, kaput, over, done. <laughs> it's over. In fact, some sheep, it is very possible, I had to study this just to make sure I heard it, and I was like, oh, I don't know, so I had to study it. So, hey, if you raise sheep and you disagree, I'll take you to the website, right? But I got it. Some sheep, it is very possible for them to fall down in such a way that they bloat and they cannot get up. And literally, they will lay there until they die. These sheep are utterly helpless. There is no more vulnerable creature than a sheep that is on its own in the wilderness. And in this passage, Jesus is making a clear connection here. It's not hard to see, right? That the tax collectors and the sinners that are drawing near to Jesus that these Pharisees despised are lost sheep in need of a shepherd. We see this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, where Jesus, he goes out and says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Please hear me this morning. If we're going to be effective in taking the gospel to those who need it, we need to understand the seriousness of the situation. They are doomed. They're helpless. They're lost. 
There's nothing they can do. And as long as they remain the way that they are, as long as they remain how they are, then they are doomed for destruction. And we should have compassion on them, not contempt. When we talk about taking the gospel to a world that hates God, if you were curious, it's not hard to see that the world loves sin and hates God. But we should not have contempt on them. We should have compassion on them because they are sheep without a shepherd. They are lost, helpless, and they are doing what lost sheep do. Please hear me out when I say this. When we are taking the gospel to people who need it, don't be surprised when non-Christians act like non-Christians. One of the problems that a lot of people have is that they want to take the gospel to people, but what they do is they try to conform a non-Christian to act like a Christian before they give them the gospel. And that's not how it works. Jesus is not in the business of behavioral modification. He's in the business of salvation. I've heard it said this way, pagan's gonna pay. That's what happens. And when we're ministering to the lost, we need to constantly be reminded of the fact that they are lost. This should give us patience and compassion. We don't despise them. We love them. See, the Great Commission is not something that Jesus gave us just to keep us busy until he returns. It's serious. It's serious. These are, there are people that you love and there are people that I love that are destined to eternity and hell. And we are too busy arguing over politics on social media. There are people in our community, in our city, potentially in this room, that if they were to die today, would spend eternity in hell. We're too busy making sure that all of our programs are working. What are we doing? What are we doing? If we as a church are not all about reaching the one lost sheep, we are wasting our time. We're wasting our time. But here's the thing. I think, to be honest, part of the reason we're so nonchalant in evangelism, no, so lackadaisical in taking the gospel to people who need it, to taking it to our neighbors, is because we don't truly understand just how helpless they are. Just how incapable they are of seeking after the shepherd. Maybe we have this perspective. Well, I mean, it's not hard, right? It's not hard. Just read your Bible. Or, I mean, you know, hey, like, I found the shepherd. Why can't you? Well, let's listen to just a couple scriptures here. Romans 3, 11. Paul makes it clear. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That last part, no one seeks for God, I think is something that we need to be reminded of. Because a lot of us have this idea that people are seeking God, but they just can't find him. Like God's playing hide and seek. I hate to break it to you, but people who are apart from Christ do not seek him. They do not. It may seem like they do. Maybe you're in this room and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You're like, no, I am seeking God, but here's what the Bible says is that you're not. You may be seeking peace and contentment. You may be seeking joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. 
You may be seeking things that are byproducts of a relationship with Christ, but you are not seeking Christ. And here's the thing, is that people desire peace, joy, love, contentment, all of these things. And so what happens is it brings them in the neighborhood of Jesus, but it never brings them to their front doorstep. And if we just sit back and think, oh, they'll find them eventually, and we do nothing, they will remain lost. Nobody stumbles their way into salvation. Like, oh, I didn't know this was here. Romans 10, 14, what does Paul say? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of, uh, believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Please know that it is not only the job of the pastor to preach the gospel. The job of the pastor, according to Scripture, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Is to be equipped to go out and reach the lost. Sheep don't seek the shepherd. Romans 8 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh. We would say this is somebody who is lost in their sins. The mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God, to the law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I don't know how else to put this. Please hear me. The sheep will not look for the shepherd. The lost will not look for God. They will not submit to God because they cannot submit to God. So why are we sitting back and acting like they will? Why are we sitting back and acting like it'll, they'll, they'll get it eventually? The gospel is not a come and see, it is a go and tell. And as long as we treat the gospel like it is a come and see, nothing will change. The world is helplessly lost. So what needs to happen? Because they will not come to the shepherd, the shepherd comes to them. We see first the lostness of the sheep. Second thing we see is the pursuit of the shepherd. This is the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? The beauty of the gospel is that the shepherd does not sit back and yell for the sheep. It's that he goes and gets it. He goes and gets it. Praise the Lord. Thank God that my salvation is not dependent on my ability to seek after God. Let's go back to the parable. He said, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost? Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Please hear me this morning. The beauty of the gospel is not that sinners find Jesus. It's that Jesus finds sinners. The sheep would not save itself if the shepherd had, did not act first. The sheep, or the sheep would not save itself. And if the shepherd did not act first, the sheep is doomed. If you're in this room and you have a saving relationship with Christ, you need to know that it is not because you came to Jesus. It's because Jesus came to you. Jesus came to you. And how do we know this? Because we've already established that the lost person doesn't seek for God and cannot seek God. Ephesians 2.1, what? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, not mortally injured, not limping along. You were dead. And what can a dead man do? Nothing. Nothing. And the fact, this fact does not detract from the beauty of our salvation. It magnifies it. Think about it. That God actively pursues his sheep. He goes for them. Listen to this quote. My favorite author. 
Jesus Christ came not to condemn you, but to save you. Knowing your name, knowing all about you, knowing your weight right now, knowing your age, knowing what you do, knowing where you live, knowing what you ate for supper and what you will eat for breakfast, where you will sleep tonight, how much your clothing costs, who your parents were. He knows you individually as though there were not another person in the entire world. He died for you as certainly as if you had been the only lost one. He knows the worst about you and is the one who loves you the most. Man, that is good news. He loved you when you had nothing to offer him. He loved me when I had nothing to give him. To know that God did not wait for me to get my act together. He did not sit back and say, man, if Mike would just wake up, then I would move. Rather, he came down in my mess, in my brokenness, and when I was down in the mud, and he picked me up and he put me on his shoulders. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were on the way out, but while we were in the depths of our brokenness, Christ died for us. See, we live in a world that is transactional by nature, don't we? You do this for me, I do this for you. And so many of us have taken this approach to life and we have applied it to the God of our salvation. But the Bible is clear that that is not the case. It's not the case. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Listen to these verses. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. See, this flies in the face of the Pharisees that are hearing this. Most rabbis believed and taught that God would accept the sinner that came to him the right way. And many of us even fall into this thinking. How do I know that? Well, I'll tell you this. You spend time working with students long enough, you hear the same things repeated. In particular, a lot of the same questions. And one question that I hear a lot is, how do I know I'm saved? It's a good question, isn't it? How do I know if I'm saved? You can tell a lot about a person based on the way they answer that question. Every t- a lot of times I've heard it put this way. How do I know I'm saved? I'll say, well, has there ever come a time where you've prayed this prayer? Or has there ever come a time where you've placed your faith in Jesus? Has there ever come a time where you repented of your sins? Notice one problem there. Has there ever come a time where you sought the shepherd? Or... When they say, yes, yes, I have done that. Then the follow-up question is the one that is the problem. It says this, well, were you sincere? Were you genuine? Now, don't get me wrong. There is an aspect where we repent of our sins. Repentance is absolutely a requirement of salvation. We already understand this, but what we need to know is that my salvation is not dependent on my sincerity. 
And here's what I'm, I'm not trying to say that you can fake it till you make it. What I'm trying to say is don't place your faith in the sincerity of a prayer. Place your faith in the pursuit of the shepherd. What does scripture tell us in Jeremiah? That the heart is deceitful above all things. It is hopelessly sick. I don't know my own motives. I don't know if I was sincere or not. I think I was. But my faith is in the shepherd. He said it. I believe it. It's true. Here, Jesus is saying the shepherd seeks the sinner. And this was revolutionary in this day. A great Jewish scholar admitted once that this is the one absolutely new thing that Jesus taught men about God. That he searched for men. So here's what I want you to know. If you're in this room or if you're listening on podcast or watching online or Facebook or whatever it may be. And you've never come to a place that you have surrendered your life to Jesus. You need to know that it's not you that comes after the shepherd. It's the shepherd that comes after you. And if you're in this room and you're hearing the words that I'm telling you, maybe, just maybe, is because God has brought you here for this moment. He brought you here for this moment. He has sought you out. Perhaps you are the lost sheep that the shepherd has pursued, and you are here at a crossroads. Are you the sheep that acknowledges your helplessness, or are you the Pharisee that denies it? We see all of these things, but here's the question is, how does he pursue? How does the shepherd pursue? I'm glad you asked. And don't let the music fool you. I'm not done. (laughs) You're doing a great job, though. How does he do it? Well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came to this world and died the death that you and I deserve took the punishment of sins that I should pay. That he took my sinfulness and my brokenness, put it to death on the cross, and rose from the dead and gave me his righteousness. That's good news. And how does he also continue to pursue the lost? Through sending his church. Understand that you and I have a vital role to play. Because some of us would say, well, if the shepherd pursues the one, then what do I, what, what's the point here? He pursues the one, and he has chosen his church to do it. 